Welcome to a new episode of Carolyn Talks, part of the So Here's What Happened podcast, which is also a proud member of the But Why the Podcast family. And today I am joined with fellow film critic Shea Vassar, and we are going to talk about Wild Indian, which was a film we both saw at this year's Sundance Film Festival. And it was written and directed by Lyle Mitchell Corbin Jr. And this is a film that created a lot of discussion and has some really fantastic performances by lead Michael Gray Eyes and co-lead Chas Spencer. And we're going to get into the film, but before we get into that, I'll have Shay introduce herself and tell us a little bit about how she got into film criticism. And then, as I said, we'll get into Well Indian and discuss um, Indigenous representation on screen. So Shay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so hi, uh, I'm Shay. I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation out of Oklahoma, and I write a lot about representation, specifically native representation on screen and in media. Um, so yeah, I, I've been writing about film for a little over four years now. Um, I answered a Craigslist ad for a film critic uh, when I was living in New York and I went to a screening of Landline by uh, Jillian Robespierre. I don't know if I said her last name right. Um, but it was, I was just looking for a way to write, um, and it's been a great outlet to, to watch films and write about films and talk films with people. So I'm, I'm really excited that we got to meet through this year's Sundance. I am so glad to, that we, that we're going to have this opportunity to talk. And I'm so glad I um, got to meet you during the festival too. So now we're going to discuss Wild Indian and I'm going to give a brief synopsis, which is Makwa, a young Anishinaabe boy has a rough life he often appears at school with bruises he says he got from falling down but no one believes him he and his only friend Teto like to escape by playing in the woods until the day Makwa shockingly murders a schoolmate after covering up the crime the two boys go on to live very different lives now as adult men they must face the truth of what they have done and what they have become so when I first watched this film at Sundance I didn't know what to think at first because I like we've discussed this before like I had very complicated feel feelings with regards to how certain scenes play especially with regards to the character Mac with his um, treatment of women but overall I think it's an extremely well done film I think the director Lyle he did a fantastic job for it this is his first debut film and he's only had two short films previously and before we get into the overall thing we're going to discuss our cons of the films and then we're going to get into our pros because I like to I like to end, try to end things on positive note and there aren't that much cons to sit to, to discuss about the film but we will do them nonetheless because they are so Shay um could you would you like to go first and tell me what things you didn't necessarily like about the films or things you wish could have been done differently? Yeah, um, so you and I have talked and it was good to talk to someone about this because Wild Indian was not a film that I felt I could just digest on my own. I, it helped having other people who saw it because it just, it tackles a lot of intense topics, but with Makwa, the character that is played by Michael Gray Eyes, he is, he has like a hard childhood and it, and it definitely comes out later in his adulthood as like a very stoic, very unemotional on the outside man. But you see hints of, of his, his emotions and his bitterness and his hardness come out 
through the way he treats women. And I got why it was there. Like, it's to say that, you know, he's hiding a lot of these violent urges, the same urge that led him to kill his classmate. But I also really hated that that was the way that we we had to... I hated that that was the window we got into that darkness because it just, it was very weird to watch. I mean, the film is very uncomfortable in ways that I, I think are good, but this was an uncomfortability that just, I didn't feel was necessary and doesn't really reflect just native men in general because you know, there's a lot of issues that go on with the missing and murdered Indigenous women um, issue. And the perpetrators of that are usually non-Native men. So this idea that Native men are violent, and that's not to say, because, you know, anyone can be violent. Your background doesn't always uh, excuse a, a violence or make you a perfect person or any of that. But it just, it felt off because there's already this idea that that native men are the ones that are are perpetrating harm to native communities so i didn't like that he was seen as such a, like an aggressive uh man towards women that was and it was so uncomfortable yeah i agree about that because that was the i i i just thought it was weird as you said this is the that violence is where we introduced to this young character because it starts out with um young maxwell played by um phoenix wilson who I think he did a fantastic job with what, with the role that he was supposed to be given because he's playing this character who's not reserved, but he's very stoic as a young person, which is something we, we don't usually see. And you get, and there's this hint of simmering violence in him. And like, we see that he grows up in an abusive um, environment, not only at home, but also at school because he went to school in a residential school, which we know those, those schools are extremely violent and abusive for um, Indigenous children, both in um, America and in Canada. And it's and he's talking about how violent things are for Mapo at home. But then I didn't like that as a, for young Mapo, we, we only see him in violent situations or in uncomfortable situations. And it kind of, and as you say, almost kind of reinforces the stereotype that Native American men are abusive and their home, their home lives are abusive. Because even here in Canada, when when I first moved here, like, I knew of like, like history before I even moved to Canada. But when I moved here, I, I really got to understand how um, there is this stereotype for them where they're seen as abusive, violent, drunks, drug addicts, right? And, and I saw it in the film, I'm like, I wish we would have been able to see moments of more of happiness for, for Mako because even in a moment where it seemed like he would have been happy when he's playing with Pedo in the woods, it ends up being a violent moment. And I'm like, what is happening here? And my first thought was, he's a little sociopath. And yeah, <laughs> and I didn't want that to be my thought of this boy. I'm like, we don't very, we don't, we rarely get to see Native American representation in, on screen. And I, and it kind of bothered me um, that this is representation that we're seeing. But then I'm like, I'm not Native American. Who am I to say that this is right or wrong? Which is also one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you about it. This is your heritage. You have this perspective. The same thing with like for Black people, where we were like, we we're tired of seeing stereotypes. And like we taught people to talk about, oh, they, we're tired of seeing uh, trauma films. And it's like, you're, we can't have trauma because that is a part of our history and it is a part of our identity as people. And like these things happen, but it's how the trauma is portrayed, right? And it just seems, yeah. and up until the end, it seems like the trauma never really stops in the film. 
and and that was that is one of the things that bothers me and then the violence towards the women is like unnecessary like we already see from his past that he has violent tendencies he killed someone and left them and buried them in the woods right. or Teddo into helping him bury this young boy in the woods and he doesn't even blink about it he goes on about his life so clearly we know he has no problem with being violent and just like Michael Grace did such a fantastic job with showing how Makwa is always on the edge of being violent we didn't need to have actual scenes of violence to get that which I so I thought those things were unnecessary and I, it just bothers me and I wish I could tell I'll be like listen I understand the story you're trying to tell but could you just ease back on the violence against women in general yeah no it was very um there's like a specific scene where he literally you know chokes a woman and it reminded me of um and whether or not you know I don't know the behind the scenes but I I immediately thought of Tarantino and Inglorious Bastards, how he was the one that was actually doing the choking scene and, and they had someone on scene where, cause she was actually choked. And, and, and so it brings up like a certain history of, of this violence towards women uh, that is so prevalent in, in cinema and especially modern cinema. You know, people like to act like um, we've gotten better. And while these conversations around movies and representation is definitely there. You know, Inglorious Bastards, it wasn't released 50 years ago. This was something that came out and we, you know, we learned about the, the actual um, violence that was shown on screen and how that was an actual choking. Like that to me is kind of how this, the same feeling was brought up with, with the scene with Makwa uh, choking the girl and only for pleasure. Like it was very, oh, it was very odd and, um, and I, I think you make a good point that it could have been hinted at where um, it's never confirmed or denied if he is still being that violent as an adult. Um, but showing it was just like a new level. Um, it was it was very, yeah, I had like a very visceral reaction to to the just openness of the violence on screen. Yeah, because um, like one of my other friends um, who was a film critic, she she started watching it during the festival and like we were messaging. She said she couldn't finish it because she she reached her tolerance. She's reached her tolerance level for films with violence against women. And I feel the same. There are some films where where if I'm seeing like too much violence, I'm like, I'm out. I checked out and I, and I yeah. stopped watching it. And I almost didn't complete watching this film for the same reason. The only thing that kept me watching is because I really wanted to see how this story would play out between um, Makwa and Tato, I was really interested in seeing their dynamic because I think Chas Spencer, like, this is the first time I've seen him in anything. And like, he went toe for toe in the very few scenes we had with him, with Michael Gray. So I was really interested in seeing how the story would play out. But there's the violence with regards to the, 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 one of the scenes we're, we're talking about is um, this a woman, a stripper working in a club, and he, like, he almost chokes her in the back of the club. And it's not what she said at first. She agreed to be choked um for like you know like light like light on sex play but then he just started to go into it and she was like you're trying to kill me right. and and then it's like he breaks and then he stops and it was like that was where I would have checked out and then it happens again um this time with a woman the the mother of the young boy that he killed in a hospital room and this woman is screaming and like you can hear her noises and I'm like where are the nurses and the doctors like hospitals are always busy i've never been in a hospital where you don't see anyone in a hallway and she's a person being watched no. because she is um they're investigating him for for the murder and 
again, he gets away with violence against another woman. And this time it's an older woman who's sick in bed. And it's just like, this is unnecessary. Why we didn't need him choking this woman to show, to know again that he has violent tendencies. It's enough that she's incapacitated in a hospital bed. He doesn't need to enact this violence on her or we, or we don't need to see it, right? So I was just like, right. and then apart from that, other parts of the film that I think um, didn't necessarily work or I wish could have been done better were, I wish we had more scenes with Maqua and Teto as adults. We don't really get to see their dynamic. And a part of that has to adjust. I think the two of them are really great in their scenes together. And I just wish we had more of that. And I wish we had more of a background on Teto because we didn't really know anything about Teto as a young person. We only know him from the perspective yeah. of his relationship with Matt. No, that's a really good point because the character of Teto just being, you know, the friend who is forced to witness and then bury his classmate's body to him being you know later as an adult in and out of prison and all of that it's it asks so many questions as to we know why makwa is the way he is but we never really see teto's full dynamic as a kid we hear about it later you know when he gets out of prison and he goes to his sister's house but you don't really get to see it in the same way that you get to see makwa's so it's it's hinted at but and, and it's not even like Teto isn't developed as a character, but it, I just wanted more because um, the, the child actors were wonderful, but then, you know, as adults, they were, you know, we just had some great performances um, that like really, like I, just in my head, you have these, this tension between these once young boys, friends, cousins, who who have this secret that they've carried for so long and just the tension that that brings um i just yeah it made me want more though because i wanted to see more of especially you know uh chas spencer like on screen because he was oh i'm wonderful and you know he was so sweet despite how hard they made him look you know with the tattoos and him coming out in and out of prison like he just had this sweet demeanor about him that was so opposite what you get from Michael Gray Eyes as Makwa. Yeah, agreed. Because as you said, I wish we had gotten to know more about Young Tato because we don't see what leads to him being becoming the adult he is. Like we see that yeah. we know that he obviously lived either had a gang life or lived um he lived a life of crime because he like we meet him coming he's been released from prison and he's coming out from tattoos and he's on probation and he's doing what he can to make it out of prison so he doesn't go back because it's hinted at, i think he was probably in prison for at least 10 years so yeah. so like we don't even know what he was charged with and we're guessing it has to do with possession but to what level like is like is he a repeat offender or did it just happen once when he just happened to go to, to prison for 10 years for this drug charge because we also know when it comes to the um, prison system like like just like black people indigenous men and women are incarcerated at higher levels to to white people so it's like was he was he unjustly incarcerated was his um his sentence longer than it should have been we don't get any right. perspective about that which i think would have been interesting to cover uh, we don't know what like clearly is infer that the psychological effects of what happened when they were young impacted him to a point where maybe he was acting or he just felt like he that he's maybe he started doing drugs as a way to cope we don't know we don't get to know that but whereas for uh, for for Maqua, you you know that his i think to me i i read him being um able to 
make it as a businessman in corporate America is because of his ruthlessness. And he doesn't care what anyone thinks. So he's going to do whatever he needs to do to succeed. So that is clearly understood about his personality. It's just that we don't understand about Marco's personality, but we do get hints of it um, that of like you mentioned his um his very soft and endearing nature when he returns and when he's staying with his sister and his and his nephew. And he's very gentle with his nephew. And he's also very patient because he he sees that his nephew is yeah. hesitant around him because this is a man, this this boy, this boy hasn't seen since he was a child. And he's very patient and he doesn't judge the child for like being hesitant. He doesn't feel bad. He understands. And then there's a moment where he goes outside to, to lie on the ground um, in this, uh, in this tent and you're getting, and I read it as this is where they bury um, their classmates body. And you, to see him like grieving, I guess, in a sense, and he's just laying on the, on the ground and he's like grieving. He's trying, I guess, like trying to understand and come to terms with what they did and he you can tell he feels a genuine regret and I just like because of Chas performance I really really wanted to know more about about um title which I think it shows how great of an actor he is where you will actually do want to know more yeah. about a character and and that's what and I think him and Mako are they're like opposites which is where I think that um the right love for his script and his character building did a fantastic job building these characters Exactly, and I know we'll get more into the the like the pros of the film, but I think it it says a lot that one of the cons of the film was we didn't get enough of a character because that that shows that the way the character was utilized just really connected with with the audience, and and it makes sense because you know we all have our own reactions to life and our experiences and our trauma. But a majority of us are not necessarily going to be able to empathize with Makwa because like you said, he is, even as a child, like a little sociopath. And you don't really see that until he shoots a classmate in cold blood because, and, and he does that because of jealousy. I mean, he is, he's motivated by the fact that this classmate who, you know, I, they're, they're probably middle school, um, you know, but is dating an older white girl with blonde hair blue eyes and and you see that that's that's what makwa wants is like he's jealous that that these kids get things that he doesn't and it turns into a certain self-hatred and especially like a self-hatred of his indigeneity and you don't have that that hardness um with Teto despite him coming out of prison like yes he has the tattoos and he might be a little bit more stereotypically hard looking but he he you know with his nephew that was something that like wow like I just loved seeing that on screen where it was just like a young boy and and you know an older uh family member and and there's that part where you know Teto gets a truck and his nephew like finally trusts him and they've, they've created that bond and, and Teto goes and just throws the ball with him, you know? And, and while that seems so stereotypical, right? Like a dad and a son figure who go and play catch, it just works so well in that moment to show that, you know, their life isn't typical, but they still have these moments that are, that are just worth it. And, um, yeah, that that moment in the film really touched me just because you seeing a a connection like that, you, you don't get that a lot. And I mean, Wild Indian is covered with trauma. I mean, the whole film is trauma filled. 
And so it was nice to have that moment for Cheto, especially because we never get that with Makua. He never has a moment where he just kind of has like a redeeming factor. He's just so hardened by his experiences. Yeah, and I think this is actually a great segue into the pros of the film and it has to do with the character development. Um, because like we, as we've, we've, we've mentioned that Makua has sociopathic tendencies and and like for me, my one part, one of the reasons he is so, so successful has to do with the fact that he's able to be ruthless in his business dealings. But the way how I think La Corbin um, did this is where he's taught, he's using this particular characteristic of a character to, to talk about the wider story of how indigenous people in their own, on their own land are crave or think they have to like pursue the ideal American dream which is you know like money success living in an expensive condo driving the most expensive car and and in my whole am I then I know like the entire time I was watching this film I kept thinking this is the story that that there that is told for every every immigrant every person of color living in North America where or even in the, around the world where we want to we have to aspire to white American ideals of what is a successful life. And we have to yeah. aspire to want to fit into their worlds, even though they're existing in our spaces. And, and I, I, I say this not only as a black, as an immigrant, a black woman living in North America, but even in back home in Barbados, like we're being black and being Caribbean, we are the predominant um, ethnic ethnicity and race on the island. When you maybe enter specific spaces where white people dominate them with regards to like car, the corporate world or even the hospitality or, or even real estate, we were like, we, we still feel we have to measure up to these people. And I'm like, why the hell do I have to feel like I have to measure up to these white people? You're on my friggin' island. Why? You're on my land. <laughs> You're on my land. I'm like, why do I feel like I have to measure up to you people? And it happens. And it's such, and it, I was legit thinking that the intern was watching this film. I'm like, yo. <laughs> wow. Like, like, and I'm like, then you think about Native Americans, like, this is their land and they still gotta feel like they gotta fit into white people's land, like white people's spaces. And I'm like, yeah, this shit is mad. Um, yeah. but but yeah, but I just love how um how loud incorporated that into the story. And and he also like we like even his, even though um Macro's sociopathy is a negative thing, because you know, being a sociopath is like a negative aspect, but it shows you I, I think he did a brilliant job of relating how maybe the pressures of wanting to fit into a white society made him like that. Like he right. could have maybe, been, he could have gotten help, but once he started to like maybe going to college and university, he basically turned off any positive, he basically turned off anything that would have been soft about him to like fit in because he's like, if I want these white people to accept me, I have to turn down my my Native Americanness. I have to turn down my ethnicity. Cause there's a scene where he talks about his, his, um, his, his ponytail and that scene shocked me because he's asking this white man played by Jesse Eisenberg, should I cut my, should I cut off my ponytail? I'm like, excuse me? What? Right. And, and it's interesting because I don't know the exact like belief system around hair. I mean, every, every native culture has like a different, uh, and, and then some people follow it still, some people don't, you know, but, but almost in every like native belief system hair is like very important it's an it's an extension of yourself and that's why so many even native men have long hair is because you you let it grow you show like a certain um pride in it and and some people don't even cut their hair unless they're in mourning 
And so that scene too, it just shows that he's doing it for show. Like he's doing it because it's almost like he, he wants to be that one native guy, right? Like at least he's talked about as the native guy, the successful native guy in this. I read it as like a tech world. I don't know if it's ever confirmed. Um, but then later you see too, like um, there's a scene where Makwa and Teto are reunited and Makwa's apartment or house or it was beautiful, but obviously nice and way wealthy people live there, aka Makwa. And you see this, this portrait of a native man, you know, with the whole headdress and stuff. And you're like, this guy is literally so turned off by his own heritage, his own ethnicity, but he uses it as like a show. It's, it's like a thing that he can just it's a, almost like a party trick or, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, like my hair, it's because I'm, I'm a Native American. Like, so it just, that character is so complex and it, Michael Gray Eyes, I think is an incredible actor. He, you know, he does this. And then one of the next projects he's coming out with is a Native sitcom that's going to be on Peacock. So I'm so interested because he, he's been able to do kind of more of like your straightforward dramas with, with uh, Fear the Walking Dead and Blood Quantum. But then we're going to see him in a sociopathic role. And then we're going to see him in a comedy. And I just, I love that he is getting this opportunity to show um, just different levels of his, his ability as an actor, because a lot of, a lot of people and not just like native actors, but like of any kind of underrepresented group, once you kind of find your niche, they don't cast you in, in just a sitcom or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I think of, of poor Wes Studi, right? Like he's an incredible actor, but the amount of times that he has been cast in the same role as like the the native man in the background as the side character um he's never really gotten that opportunity to be the leading role in a big film even a big film like this so i'm really happy to see that this this film was just so full of native talent and i hope that even if you hate the film like that's my thing is even if people hate the film and i get it you know, it's not an easy film to watch, um, but I hope that people at least can recognize how great the native, like, talent in this film is. Like, watch five minutes of it just for that, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so um, so just to go back to your thing a bit, like, I think one of the reasons I was so shocked, because it was just occurring to me, I think one of the reasons I was so shocked is, like, as a Black person, um, and as a Black woman in particular, I have, I'm very connected to my hair. I say this now as my hair is, like, cut super short, but I did that for specific <laughs> reasons. But, like, my natural hair is so important to me as part of my heritage. And that, you know, like, from on Twitter, like, Black women talk a lot about our hair. And, like, for, as you said, for some Native American people, for some Indigenous people, having their long hair does, it doesn't necessarily symbolize who they are and it doesn't show that they're super connected to their heritage or anything, but for some it is. It's, it's an outward sign and it just came back to my mind um, where last year, was it, I think it was early last year, maybe even before or the year before, and like the last two years have been like super long. I think maybe it been 2019 or early 2020, where yeah. here in Canada, there's um in one of the Northwest Territories, I think, um, there is this town where they, the local government, they want to put this highway and they want to care and they want to take it through. Um, not, it's not a reservation, but it's through a town that is 
predominantly populated by um by indigenous by first nations people and one of the leaders for one of the um local organizations he like he was mourning because he's like you're desecrating our land because like they're saying you don't even need to build this highway here because there's like all of this property all around where you could go and take it but you're doing this and you're desecrating our land you're desecrating our 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 heritage and, and what and what this land means to us and he cut off his pigtails his ponytails yeah in public he 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 he, he gave this amazing speech and then he knelt down and then he cut off his um his plaits and he threw them down and i remember reading someone i was explaining they're like you're they're like when a man for their for their particular um their tribe they're like this is a sign of mourning and this is a sign of heartbreak and it's yeah. a sign of anger and that just blew me away so then to see um Makwa just casually say should i cut off my hair and you know he, and you know he's saying it to show like Jesse Eisenberg's character. Like, see, I can be one of you guys. I like, see, I don't, I'm not super connected to my heritage. Yeah. I'm not like super Indian or whatever. I can be like, uh, like you know, like like a white man with a clean cut, the short hair. And I just, and I just, I think that's one of the. It just came to me like maybe that's why because that scene from with that guy on the in the on the highway, like that really hit me. I remember I cried because it was like y'all, because like all of the people behind him, like there was this gas from the people that like, we couldn't see our screen up for during the, the conference. And I was like, wow. But then to see Marco do this. And then also with regards to Chas um performance with Teto, he to me his his character is so heartbreaking because his character, he feels like to me, I think his character is stuck almost in limbo because he's never really been able yeah. to move on from what happened. And like he went to prison all this and now he's out, but he's still not free of what happened. And like it's it's sad to see that this this empathetic man this extremely loving and tender person be stuck in this limbo where he's tormented for something that he didn't even do right like the only reason he even helped mac uh, mac would bury the young boy is because he thought that mac was going to kill him too right exactly so, so like he was coerced into doing this thing and he hasn't been able to move on and he's tormented and then he goes and confesses to the mother what happens and then he dies and like they get into this like this this fight and like he dies and I was like that's so I was so upset I was like that's so unfair and I'm like and and then what happens in the end is like does he get away with it does Mako get away with killing not one but killing two 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 men two young people and it's just like Tero's life just ends just like that and it's like this is this sociopath really gonna see because at the end of the film it's, and it's pretty ambiguous and I'm right. I'm hoping you can offer some insight because I am it's it, it what we see is um Makwa in a teepee and I, I to me it looks like a medicine tent it looks because they're doing like the they're like a spell I was like they're doing the um like the cleansing and I'm wondering if that's what it was, but it looks like his parents are sick because they have bumps on him. So I'm like, what is this? Is this like smallpox? Is this like a reference to when like Native Americans were intentionally inflicted with um with smallpox during um the expansion by white, white people out west? I was like, is this a callback for that? Or did his parents have like maybe some sexually transmitted disease like syphilis or anything? I, I couldn't figure right. out. Like, I think it's so ambiguous. What is going on? Yeah, I won't lie. I didn't love because you know they show that at the beginning too. Um, mm-hmm. So I I called them the bookend scenes of of you know the the in like Indian in quotes, but with with smallpox all over him. And I think it was like a callback to say like essentially you know both of these these men are are suffering from this like white colonial infliction. And 
it carries out completely differently. And while Tedos is mostly a a consequence of Mockwood's actions, you know, he still is there with with the prison. And and you when you said that he was stuck in limbo, I thought that was great because in every aspect of his life, it kind of seems like he's stuck in limbo. Because you know, when he tries to get a job at a couple of places, they're like, "Oh, we're not going to hire you." So he gets a dishwashing job, but he also is just so okay with that. You know, like he. He is so sweet spirited that he he seems so motivated to do something different after this time in prison. But it just kind of seems like he's stuck in this limbo, this these consequences of of white colonization that's been around him. And while he was more of a uh, a passive person that was com- or um, inflicted with that. Makwas was much more, you know, aggressive where, you know, there, there's a moment before we, we know that Makwa has like a deep, deep hatred and a deep violent tendency where he's looking out the window from, from the bus and he just sees this blonde hair, blue eyed family. And, and, you know, you just can tell that his gaze is angry. He's angry that while he's on the bus about to go home to his abusive family, you know, this family is all skipping and happy and they have nice backpacks and they look beautiful. They look conventionally beautiful. And so you, you, while, while Teto is more passive to this kind of world that they've been stuck in, Makwa is very angry about it. And he internalizes that anger to the point to where it turns so violently outward. And especially it's, it's ironic that he does that to a classmate who, like I said before, is like dating, you know, middle school dating. Uh, one of, I I read it as like one of the people, one of the girls that he saw with the, the blonde haired family. And so it's kind of ironic that he kills a classmate over that. And then you fast forward to Makwa as an adult and he is now married to Kate Bosworth, mm-hmm. right? Who at, the, at a certain time, Kate Bosworth was like the epitome of beauty, you know, like there was like a time where Kate Bosworth was, was it. So I loved that casting there because it, it really did symbolize that, uh, Mako was like, not only am I going to, um, live in your world, like I'm going to consume it in the same way that white people take and consume and, and ruin everything. And so just this idea of of colonization being inflicted, I think is really, I get why those bookend scenes are there. I don't love them. I think, I, I really think the film speaks for itself on this kind of like white infliction um, that I, I get a little weird sometimes when, when native films always have to have some kind of metaphor in them. And I, I was like, oh, of course we have to have like a very visual metaphor here. But I also get that, you know, if, if you want to really take a certain point and drive it home for your audience, you have to give that visual. And especially in a, in a medium that is visual. So I get it. I get why they're there. I don't love them. But um, this idea of white infliction is a seriously dense topic. Yeah, um, it's, it's, for me, it's not, I didn't only see that, I didn't only see it as, as you call it, white affliction. I saw it also as a discussion of assimilation. Like we talked Ooh. about how we wanted to fit into this, um, into this white world and on his own land. Um, but it's also to me, I just saw it as 
you as for a lot of um and it's something that i notice a lot where uh, for a lot especially for men of color in particular where they because they they feel that they have to aspire to or show that they're better than white men they aspire they they go actively seek to go after the white ideal of beauty which as you said is yeah. the blonde hair blue eye idea of perfection which is you know is also based on the aryan um the, the aryan idea of of um, white superiority white uh, white perfection which also again is always has always been ironic to me because hitler was not blonde hair tall or blue eye so that is also a sign <laughs> right. of, like you're all basing all of this on a man who hated himself like you clearly hitler did not love who he was he did not like who he what he looked like so he projected his idea of, of white superiority and also not only him but also a whole bunch of like scientists who used to, who did sort of sciences like phrenology and all that bs onto their idea of, of beauty and then you got all these white men these men of color doing the same foolishness like saying i'm not denigrating anyone's love like if you generally love it go ahead do it. right right but it's about you know like they're like you can see there's this whole thing where a lot of men of color just actively not only go after white women, but white women who look a particular way. And then like, I thought that Kate Bosworth casting was genius too. Like, I don't, I would love to know how he pitched her role. Right, her. I was thinking that. <laughs> it was like, I would love to know how he got her and how he pitched this role to her because I'm like, she was a, a, a she was one of the it girls in like the early 2000s, like early 2010s. She she was that. And then after that, I would have said it would have been like Jennifer Lawrence. And then it was like, you know, and not, and then and, not, and then we had like Emma Thompson and all those women, but yeah. So like when you see this man who he he had clearly he he was the jealousy for his friend in school, but then he grew up and he's like I'm gonna have this life, I'm gonna take this life, I'm gonna do better and show that I can be just as good, even better than all these women. I can have their white women too. I can make claim to this white woman. And then um, there's a scene that gave me shivers at my spine, and I would love to talk to them about the scene where the son she has a baby and she's talking about having another child. And he's like, he clearly does not love the idea of having another child. Right. And oh, looking at the son, and I'm wondering, is he wishing his son was blonde haired and blue eyed too? Did he wish that his son did not look like him? And like that, that was just running through my head with those scenes with the sons because he's looking at the family photos and then he's looking at her and he's looking at this baby. And I'm like, clearly this man has some ideas. Like not only, it doesn't only have necessarily to do with his, his sociopathy. It just has to do with him wanting this, this ideal American life. And then yeah. you, again, like, we always, like, like, I just love, like, we also have um, Tedo as the juxtaposition of that, where he is, he's, he, he's at home with his family, his sister, his um, thing, and, like, for him, like, they're Native American, but it's not a part, it, like, it's not an active part of their identity, if you know what I mean, like, they just are, they know who they are, and they, like, that's not a part of the discussion with their characters, whereas for Macro, like, his heritage is a part of his characterization and, and like how it's built so I just love how um love like based their characters like that but but yeah like Michael Gray is did a fan freaking fantastic job with his role like he 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 was legit terrifying in some aspects so like, scary like, like oh. he was so scary and I'm like yes Michael Gray I show these people oh, yes what? right <laughs> yeah no he and and I mean I I've been able to talk with Michael Gray eyes on on Twitter a couple of times and mm -hmm. everyone that I know who's like talked with him in person or or been able to interview him has been like he's like the sweetest guy ever but honestly after that that role I'm like I don't know if I'll ever because he was just so convincing yeah. and so scary in it that and again like you don't see it completely when he's an adult but then like the more that Mach was on screen the more you're like this guy is 
scary. Like I, whoo, I would not want to be around him. So it, th that is just incredible. And knowing that Michael Gray, I just had such a great reputation as being like such a sweet guy. It's like, okay, this guy has, he's like a high caliber actor, like high caliber. Yes. So Yes, I like for I'm like not even joking when I say like for next year's award seasons, even though I'm trying to divest myself of the whole awards thing because we all know it's like proven to be BS with the way how they oh, nominate the color. But that being said, I would love to see some acknowledgement for his performance in Wild Alien. And even for Chas Spencer, I really think Chas Spencer did a fantastic job with, yeah. with his role. Like he like that scene in Macla's apartment was amazing like yo and even just the scenes where like he's by himself like the scenes where he's like cleaning the restaurant where he's where he's working or if he's with us and he's just like you can see so much about um about Tedo in his character like you can see him thinking about his plans and just like he just looks yeah. so contemplative and he looks so thoughtful I'm like I would love to see him in more I would love to see him in more projects and I hope he and I hope he does get more from this and and that's one of the things that we need to see more indigenous stories of all genres it doesn't have to be a biopic it can be a drama like this or even something as silly or even like a comedy like you said Michael Grez is developing yeah. and like here in Canada like we had Trickster which unfortunately oh uh, I know by the way so I drew to the controversy with um Michelle Latimer but I was really hoping like Net Netflix would pick it up because I think it's a show that deserves a chance I haven't seen it yet but um like based on, re on 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 clips that i've seen and also on like um comments by other people who have seen it and they've loved it and think it's a really good show and like the cast and they think the cast and crew deserves a chance because this was literally yeah. the first all indigenous projection where it's like all the main characters are indigenous the, the crew um and writing staff were indigenous and well not michelle Latimer, but you know what i mean like the writing staff she whatever she was so you know it <laughs> But, but yeah, but I just think it's important to have these stories. And then like, um, I just hope that with the, the word of mouth that World Indian is getting that um, we do get more films like this and we do get them not only at film festivals, but we do get them on, on um, streaming services like Netflix and, yeah. and Hulu and Amazon and Disney Plus or whatever. And I think like, despite, like we said, we have our misgivings about the film with regards to um, how women are treated and certain aspects of it. But I just think that he did, a, I just think that uh, Mitchell Corbin Jr. did a fantastic job for his first feature film. And the film is, I think, really well made too. Like, it, like the pacing is well done. The, the, the story and the, and the character developments are really well done. And clearly he's a good director because he knows how to direct the actors to tell the yeah. stories that he wants. And he's working with people like Michael Gray Eyes and Jesse Eisenberg and Kate Bosworth who do have, um, who, who are like veterans in, in, um, in the film industry. So clearly he knows how to work with, direct, how to work with actors and how to direct them. So I, I'm hoping that he does get more opportunities and he has more stories to tell. And, um, and, just before we wrap up, like, is there anything you'd like to say about the film overall? No, I mean, I, I always like to warn, of course, when I'm talking about a film like this, um, I think the fact that you said the pacing, that is a really good point because, you know, with so many films that are about trauma, especially when it comes to like generational trauma, colonial trauma, um, sometimes it's, it's like some big event at the beginning and, and it doesn't, it's not spread out and, and the pacing on this film really does make it a little bit more digestible just because 
uh, again, we, you know, we talked about some of the violence issues. Sorry, the puppy is, is crying at me. And I'm like, I don't know what you want. But overall, the fact that it's spread out, it, it makes it easy to digest throughout the time on screen. It's not too long. Like it, it you know, I thought, I thought it was handled really well. Um, because a lot of, a lot of times dealing with trauma is, is about how you're presenting it and how you're dealing with it. And, um, I, I of course would prefer a film like this from an actual, like indigenous director than, you know, other people who are trying to trauma bond with an audience about indigeneity or, or colonial violence. So, you know, I, I think this is a really great step in the right direction. I do know it has not been picked up for distribution yet. Uh, I heard about that this morning and I was mm -hmm. kind of bummed to hear that, but you know, it is a weird world we live in. And uh, especially with post COVID or current COVID situations with, with distributors uh, picking stuff up, it's, and I get it because it's, how do you market a film like this, you know? And I'm sure that's what some of these companies are, are asking, but I really think that it will find a good home because it is a super well-made film. And this is not the last we're gonna hear of uh, this filmmaker. Like Lyle Mitchell Corbin is, we're gonna hear more about him. And I hope we do. Like, I hope he gets the opportunity to, to present more of these complex issues on screen. Yeah, for sure. I'm um, like in the last few years, I'm um, like, this is, and so like, this is where, as I said, before we wrap up, like just talking about the film in general, but also like, when we talk about indigenous representation on screen, it kind of, it to me, it almost feels almost like, I would say the beginnings of a renaissance with regards to indigenous representation. And I say that because you have wild Indian and then, um, last I would think it was 2019 or 2020 we had blood quantum which also stars yeah. um, michael gray eyes and then we yeah. had trickster last year um that was on cbc um canadian broadcasting corporation i believe is what it stands for anyway and then um and then you mentioned michael gray as his production um his the the, the the comedy he's working on but then it all but between that we had in the 90s like we had a lot of films and a lot of TV shows about Native Americans, but they were also kind of like stereotypical because I make a great like we like one of his um one of his one of the first films I recall seeing him in. Let me look up the name. It was one with Janine Turner, and that was a Lifetime film. And um, yeah. what was it called? Oh my gosh, let me look up the name. But like this was in the nineties where you had a lot of western um lifetime films and like he was in quite a few of them and then you had like a lot of like West Tweedy would have been um right. too and but those were also as I said stereotypical because a lot of them dealt with like the West as I said the white western aspect uh, expansion and like white people and white women in particularly falling in love with um <laughs> with, like, with like Native American men and it's like the whole you know oh these savages but then it's like I'm not that much of a savage because see I love you and they're like see he's not a savage he loves me though you know what I mean those kind of stories that's exactly how it was <laughs> and and just like we had all those films in the 90s and the 80s and now we were getting more contemporary stories and I just and I, I would I, I think it would also help with a lot of I think education because to me, it seems like a lot of people don't understand, even if you look at the tribes, they don't know that there's like hundreds of tribes. Right. 
Like people would say, okay, we know the cream, we know the Cherokee, we know the Ojibwe. But I'm like, that's not all. Or, you know, like there's legit hundreds of tribes, like the Ashinaabe is like, there, the Ashinaabe covers, uh, like, I think like seven or eight different tribes that span. Yeah, I think you're right. Ontario. Yeah. And like you, and then you have like the, those in the Northwestern territories. And, and like we just need to see more stories about. Native Americans and Indigenous and First Nations peoples in all fa- in all areas of society working, um, doing all jobs. I want to see rom coms. I want to see actions. Yes. You know my actions. I want to see um, more. Um, I want to see horrors and thrillers. I think there was there was one that like Guillermo del Toro was involved in, but the writer and direct the writer and director is a white man, but he did consult. Um, he did have Native American um, uh, mainly. I think mostly Native American cast. And was it? I think it's called Antlers. Um, yeah, I, I had heard about it. I was trying. I know it got pushed. Uh, I think it was supposed to come out last year, and then I think it got pushed to this year. Um, and I I've been trying to get a screener. Uh, and now that you brought it up, I think I'm gonna try again. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna try to because the thing is, I saw that press conference um, with the director and Guillermo del Toro during um, San Diego Comic Con, and it sounded really interesting. And the reason, like. The reason I'm very interested in it is because, yes, it's written by and directed by a white man, but you have Guillermo del Toro involved. So, you know, like the horror and the creature and the creature aspect is going to be on par and on top. But they like he the director during the press conference, he spoke about how he spoke to scholars, Native American scholars, to make sure that he didn't step out of line like he did his research, but he also made sure he consulted, I think, at least two or three Native American scholars and he was like, they were always a part of the production, like from beginning to end. And he made sure that he respected the land that he was working on and all of that. So and that's me. That's me. Wow, very yeah. um, Because like, we've heard stories of people who don't respect, like when they go on indigenous land, like, whether it's in Hawaii or, or here uh, in Canada or in our America, where like they do things, it's like you clearly have no respect for the land and for the people. Um, right. <laughs> it happens way too often. <laughs> way too much but yeah I just I I'm looking forward to more stories like this um like I just said it's gonna be a rough watch for some people because of this scenes for violence against women but I just think it's also a really important film with regards to how it talks about assimilation and and how it talks about um identity and and I think in a way also talks about the incarceration in Native American people, but without pushing the story. If you're paying attention, you're getting that. That's what he's discussing because of it. Um, Tedo, like he talks about how am I supposed to be able to get back on my feet if you don't help me? People want to get out of prison. Like people expect them to be me- functioning members of society, but society doesn't really facilitate them getting back on their feet and becoming functioning. And it talks about trauma and I think PTSD and also mental health. Um, because I think one thing yeah. the film that like, we didn't mention this, but I think one thing is showing is that people in the Native American community do suffer from mental health issues, and they do suffer from various forms of trauma caused by various things, whether it's um, um, because of what happened with the residential schools, or whether it's because like if you like we said like Mac was clearly a sociopath, but like maybe like it wasn't recognized in him like these tendencies and these actions, like no one paid attention to this that this child clearly needs. Um, psychological evaluation and therapy and counseling possibly and so I think that's one thing the film discusses um I think it's worth seeing because of that for sure no I think you make some great points there and uh it it's just so complex I mean eventually I will re-watch the film uh and and I'm sure I'll pick up a lot more just because there it's so every moment the characters it's it 
it's so layered and and you can tell that just a lot of thought and care was put into this production uh and not you know not just from from lyle but also from uh really it's productions like this that make me feel like everyone on set cared about the story and making it as authentic and as as powerful as possible and it comes across on screen yes um thank you so much Anna. Agreed. And so as we wrap up, is there anything you would like to promote that you like the listeners to go and look up for your website, your writing, where they can find you on Twitter and maybe Instagram? Yeah. So the best way um, to find out what I'm up to is just to follow me on uh, all my social media is the same. It's at just and then Shay, S-H-E-A, Vassar, V-A-S-S-A-R. Uh, I post a lot of my writing on social media. So uh, that's that's the best way to find me and support me. Mm -hmm. And for me, everyone, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at CarrieCNH12. That's C-A-R-I-E-C-N-H-1-2. You can look for links to my writings, other podcast episodes. So here's what happened. And for the past year, I've been doing the virtual round with the African-American Film Critics Association, where I and other Black film critics speak to Black creatives in the film, television, and art industries. And for this year has been amazing. We've spoken to some really amazing um, creatives in the film industry. We've spoken to people who I think have done an, have done important work for representation. We've spoken to Sam Pollard, director, editor of um, MLK FBI, which chronicles how the FBI went after Martin Luther King Jr. for his um, civil rights movement and for his work in the civil rights movement. We've spoken to Yatita Badaki and Ricky Whittle about their about the new season of American Gods. We recently had um, roundtables with um, singer and actress now. Andre Day and director Lee Daniels about their new film, The United States versus Billie Holiday, where Andre Day gives an amazing and stunningly and eerily on point performance of um, singer um, Billie Holiday. And it shows us how Billie was um, targeted by the FBI, like, you know, like they like to do with Black people, for, um, for her work, her singing of Strange Fruit and and so you can find you can find that roundtable with um, with Andre Day, and also a virtual roundtable with Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield and director Shaka King for their film Judas and the Black Messiah, and Zendaya and John David Washington for um, Malcolm and Marie, which we all know was quite the topic on Twitter. And you can look out for those roundtables on the AFCO website as well as their YouTube channel, and I will provide links to those in the show notes. And again, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Carolyn Talks. And thank you, Shay, for speaking to me. This has been fun and I can't wait to do it again with you. And everyone, please wear a mask and stay safe. Ooh, ooh, ooh.